So Nick, my oral boards are nearly upon me. I'm going to be taking them in December. Man, Faye, I am feeling kind of lucky because mine are after yours in January, um, but the heat is starting to get turned up. How are you studying? So one of the ways that I'm studying um, is by going onto the OBG project and taking a look at their most up-to-date information to make sure that I am studied up on GYN because I don't practice GYN anymore. I'm going back through my bookshelf articles to take a look at some of those high yield topics from GYN that I just don't remember. Um, but they've also got a ton of great other information regarding obstetrics, certainly, um, but then even just professionalism things um, and life as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And so you don't need to just be studying for your oral boards to appreciate and use OBG Project. You can also use it if you are a resident or an attending and you're just studying up to make sure that you are practicing um, good OBGYN. You can also join us to get OBG first and make your very own bookshelf and go back to those resources that you like. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can actually sign up for one whole year free. Head on over to our website, check out the sidebar, figure out how you can get OBG first for a whole year, absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Priogs over, over Coffee. coffee. So Faye, we're going to channel our inner midwives today and talk about limiting intervention in labor and birth. It's been one of our, I think, most requested episodes. So let's jump into it. So for today, our objectives are to discuss reasons that patients and providers may seek to reduce interventions in labor. We're going to review evidence behind various techniques for coping and support in labor because we know labor is uncomfortable. And finally, we'll review evidence behind obstetrical interventions in various scenarios that pertain to low-risk pregnancies. Remember that patients in labor and delivery have more information, whether accurate or inaccurate, than ever before to inform their opinions, choices, and risk tolerance. And one thing is for certain, more patients are choosing birth centers and home births as a perceived way to hopefully reduce intervention and promote physiologic labor. And today, we're going to review practices that are worth reviewing on your own unit to limit intervention when appropriate in a generally low-risk patient. We are not advocating for non-intervention, to be clear. Um, and certainly, we want to make sure that you are practicing in a safe way that is best for both you and your patients. The Committee Opinion 766 reviews some of these things, and we'll essentially go through the same questions and interventions in our review. However, of course, we can't be exhaustive of all of the things that are covered in the Committee Opinion, so it's also worth a read to review other items that we can't cover today, like hydration and nutrition during labor, pushing techniques, family-centered or gentle cesarean births. So Nick, let's start off with talking about coping in labor and techniques to do so. One of the things that I think anecdotally makes a lot of sense, and there is evidence for, is continuous emotional support in labor. We probably would all agree that having seen a number of patients, that those with good emotional support, regardless of whether they achieve vaginal delivery or have a cesarean delivery that's unanticipated, tend to appreciate and enjoy their experience more um, and are more at peace, I think, with ultimately what occurs. 
There's actually randomized trial evidence of all things to support the need for continuous labor support and shows benefits that are really actually pretty significant and varied um, from things like shorter labor times, decreased need for analgesia, fewer operative deliveries, fewer reports of dissatisfaction with their laboring experience, less cesarean delivery overall with a relative risk for those receiving continuous emotional support of 0.75 or a 25% reduction. And I think that in and of itself suggests pretty significantly a potential for cost effectiveness of continuous labor support and then less likely to have a five minute APGAR score less than seven. What defines continuous labor support? A lot of us probably think of doulas um, or individuals who have some degree of training typically in continuous labor support. And yes, they are frequently the objects of study in these trials. There are official doula certifications programs um, for those who are seeking professional identity formation as a doula, but there are also truly lay doulas, if you will, who don't have any of that experience and really rely upon their own experience with labor and birth to kind of advocate for patients. Friends and family, though, can also be continuous labor support, and there's actually an interesting randomized trial of 600 patients who underwent a curriculum, basically, to learn labor support techniques to administer to their partners or friends who are in labor. And it was found to be effective in reducing labor duration and improving APGAR scores. So again, maybe you really can help teach some of this to patients who don't have access to doulas otherwise. And I think that it's kind of the last thing that doesn't have a lot of evidence for it, but is something of more and more interest is providing that virtual or technologic doula. Um, certainly the pandemic and visitor restrictions that we've all come in contact with at this point has increased interest in this arena to provide emotional support to patients in labor. Um, and it would be interesting to see if tech can increase access, though physical touch, immediate support, and the ability to advocate or react quickly to changes um, are certainly limitations of technology, but potentially a good, interesting project going forward. Absolutely. The other realm that we can talk about, Faye, are kind of non-pharmacologic techniques for coping. Here we are going to use the word coping, um, and it's just a better and more complete way to talk about and to assess labor pain and denote some normal physiologic discomfort with labor because we know that labor is uncomfortable and sometimes painful. So asking the patient how they are coping can provide a way to assess other factors which may influence pain or its experience, such as anxiety or support. So while your patient may still be uncomfortable in labor, they still may be coping well with that discomfort. A few non-pharmacologic techniques have been well studied to determine effectiveness or comparative effectiveness. And there are trials, but with substantial heterogeneity in their techniques and application. Some options include things like water immersion, which has been shown in observational trials to lower pain scores without evidence of harm in the first stage of labor. There are also things like intradermal sterile water injections, acupuncture or massage, TENS units, which are those transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation units, aromatherapy, and also, interestingly, um, audio analgesia. So, this is kind of a shout out to one of the coolest studies that we have seen in recent memory from Dr. Melissa Wong at Cedar sinai in um, LA. Uh, I believe this was when she was a fellow actually in MFM, um, and she presented on exploring virtual reality um, as a way to improve coping, which also recently came out as a paper uh, in AJOG in August of this year. Finally, an additional shout out to Rebecca 
Decker, who is a PhD and a nurse, who runs the evidence-based birth website and has a really excellent and frequently updated series on pain management in labor. Her book, uh, titled Babies Are Not Pizzas, is also a worthwhile look at our own potential biases as obstetricians or trainees from a combined patient and birth professional perspective. All right, Nick, so let's kind of shift our focus a little bit and talk about, you know, obstetric management of labor and delivery. Um, and what are some of the things that, you know, we do or don't do that um, potentially could limit interventions? Yeah, so we'll have a couple of questions or practices that we'll question in this segment of the podcast. And I think the first thing and probably the thing that many of our listeners are familiar with are the question of when and whether to admit the patient in latent labor. We've all been there before, I think, when you're on the fence about whether to admit the patient because she's presented and is like two or three centimeters dilated and it's just like, oh, it's on the fence. Maybe she's transitioning now. Should we go ahead? Observational trials have associated those early admissions with more labor arrest, more oxytocin use, more IUPC use, more antibiotic use because of higher incidence of fevers, um, and more cesarean delivery in the active phase. Importantly, these studies can't determine whether this was directly associated with presenting to the hospital for care or whether patients who have a quote-unquote dysfunctional latent phase are more likely to present for care and thus skew the results. So a little bit hard to make that determination there, but it makes you think a little bit more about admitting that patient who's two centimeters instead of having her labor a little more at home. There also are some randomized trial evidence that can give us some insight into this decision-making. There actually is a randomized trial out there um, about delayed versus early admission, where delayed implied waiting active phase of labor versus early admission, meaning on their first presentation, going ahead and admitting them, um, regardless of whether they're active or not. The delayed group had lower rates of epidural use and labor augmentation. The delayed group had greater patient satisfaction. Um, the delayed group spent less time on labor and delivery. But for some of those obstetrical outcomes, there wasn't any difference in operative delivery rates, cesarean delivery rates, or newborn outcomes, um, though the trial was too small to really power some of those things sufficiently. So again, some questions with respect to whether that might be appropriate for the low-risk patient to consider waiting longer. The other trial that we should mention in this that gives us some indirect insight into this question is the ARRIVE trial. And the ARRIVE trial, as you probably have heard many times, was a trial randomizing patients to 39-week induction versus awaiting spontaneous labor or medically indicated induction at 40 weeks and five days being the ultimate endpoint for, um, for pregnancy induction. There was less cesarean delivery in the 39-week induction group um, at a clip of 18.6% for the 39-week group versus 22.2% for the expectant management group, and no difference in neonatal outcomes. Kind of one of the questions that has come up about the ARRIVE trial was really what was the distribution of the rate of spontaneous labor in that expectant management group, and you know, should we glean anything from that? information or lack thereof. And the ARRIVE trial doesn't publish that. They didn't publish like what exactly the breakdown was of how many people went into spontaneous labor versus how many people were induced ultimately in that expectant management group. And the admission practices of, you know, oh, if someone showed up in 
early labor at 40 and 2? Did they come in and then get augmented? Again, the data is just not that granular to get at and draw a lot of conclusions from. So arrive, unfortunately, doesn't really answer that particular question. But I think what kind of the important thing in respect of thinking about this is that arrive does suggest equipoise and maybe benefit between a 39-week induction and awaiting spontaneous labor. So I think actually may push back a little bit and say, well, maybe it is okay to admit the patient who's early labor as opposed to full active phase. Again, might be a stretch to think about that, but something to keep in mind as you counsel patients regarding those 39-week inductions. And then finally, we don't want to take admission off the table for patients too, because there may be a variety of good reasons to admit patients um, for latent labor. No pain management in and of itself is an important consideration for admission, patient fatigue, and then kind of having the patient admitted in those circumstances in particular actually gives you as a physician a good opportunity to implement teach or supplement coping strategies as we previously talked about in the podcast for that patient. So I think that does it for sort of the latent labor, and I'm not sure I have an answer to that truthfully, Faye, but I think with our next topic, we have more of a definitive answer to give. Yeah. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about was, you know, the term pre-labor rupture of membranes or PROM. So do we induce these people or do we not induce, right? So it's a super common scenario. We see this all the time. And there are a few questions that, you know, sometimes we get from patients. So number one is, do I need to be induced right away or can I wait for spontaneous labor? And then if I wait, how long can I wait? And if I don't wait, what's the best method to start labor? So before we actually get into these questions, we should review some of the evidence. So first of all, historical studies have demonstrated about 78% of patients will labor within 12 hours, and 95% of these patients with PROM will labor in 24 to 28 hours. So there was a study called the TERM-PROM randomized controlled trial, which looked at induction versus expectant management of PROM. It was a four-arm randomized controlled trial with immediate induction arms with oxytocin versus prostin gel, and then the expectant management arms where they were given up to four days, prompt or clinical concern for choreo before being induced, which, you know, is a little bit scary to me waiting yeah, four days. that's a long time. <laughs> so the median time to delivery for expectant management was 33 hours for both arms, and then 95% delivering by the 94 to 107 hour mark after rupture. However, immediate induction can reduce other risks based on systematic reviews where 60% of patients were from the term prompt trial. Basically, there was a decreased time to delivery by about 10 hours. There was a decrease of chorioamnionitis or endometritis with a relative risk of 0.49. There was a decrease of early onset neonatal sepsis um, with a relative risk of 0.73, and also an overall decrease in NICU admission with a relative risk of 0.75. Importantly, the overall quality of evidence for neonatal outcomes in particular was low, and additional randomized controlled trials in this space may be needed. In terms of methods, TermProm noted that the number of vaginal exams and fever risk were slightly less overall with oxytocin, though the prostaglandins used were vaginal gel, so there likely was an increased number of exams when you had to keep putting in that vaginal gel, right? Overall, the time to delivery was similar in both groups, and other trials have not found significant benefits to prostaglandin versus oxytocin. 
Some other trials have also evaluated the use of balloon catheter in PROM, and um, there was potentially an increased risk of infection, especially if it's used alone, 9.7% versus 2.9% in oxytocin alone. With respect to combining balloons with other pharmacologic agents, there appears to be no benefit to the balloon plus oxytocin versus oxytocin by itself, though there were very small numbers overall in evaluating this. So our general practice is usually in a patient who's prompt is to forego using the balloon if you can. That was a long way of trying to get to our initial questions, right? Do I need to induce right away? Can I wait? If I wait, how long can I wait? And if I don't wait, what's the best way to start labor? I think with all the evidence that we have, Nick, is that it's reasonable to wait some time for spontaneous labor based on the term prom data, suggesting almost 80% of patients will labor by 12 hours after prom. However, patients should be aware of potentially increased risks. And also, if the patient is group B strep positive, that patient should be started on penicillin to reduce neonatal group B strep sepsis risk immediately. So not waiting to start your penicillin. And then finally, oxytocin does seem to potentially be the best agent, though the evidence is somewhat limited overall. All right, Nick. So uh, the other thing that, you know, we kind of wanted to look at was, you know, do we need to put the patients on the monitor the entire time that they're in labor, right? Because I feel like it's so like, it's just like a trigger that we pull. We like put in the order set and all of a sudden we're like continuous fetal monitoring. Is that necessary? Uh, Yes and no. There's certainly a place for intermittent auscultation in well-selected patients. So the issue with continuous fetal monitoring has been that it really unfortunately has not been shown to significantly affect outcomes like perinatal death or cerebral palsy rates, um, but it has become entrenched in obstetric practice and part of what we do, as you mentioned, pretty much routinely. Patients who are low risk could be considered for intermittent auscultation um, and potentially as a consequence or really as a benefit, I guess I should say, have a decreased risk of cesarean delivery. There's a Cochrane review out there of 13 randomized controlled trials um, comparing continuous fetal monitoring versus intermittent auscultation in these low-risk patients that demonstrates continuous fetal monitoring increases cesarean delivery rate by a relative risk of 1.6 and increases operative vaginal delivery rates with a relative risk of 1.15. On the other hand, though, continuous fetal monitoring did decrease risk of early neonatal seizures by about 50%. Um, And then sort of as a toss-up, there was no difference in the rates of cerebral palsy or neonatal death and no difference in important outcomes neurodevelopmentally um, at four years of age when comparing these two strategies. So basically, again, it could be considered for the well-counseled low-risk patient. Low risk, though, I say really purposefully because it's really important to define this for intermittent auscultation practices. Inclusion criteria for IA is going to vary by institution, but generally speaking, the ACOG committee opinion mentions contraindications can include things like meconium staining of fluid, intrapartum bleeding, or any sort of abnormal fetal testing prior to admission. You can't have any fetal conditions that are going to increase your risk, like anomalies or growth restriction. You can't have maternal conditions that are going to increase your risk, including things like patients who are toe lacking, um, patients with diabetes or hypertension. Um, And then also, you really can only have patients who are undergoing spontaneous normal labor 
meet criteria for intermittent auscultation. So you can't be induced or have labor augmented um, because of that risk of tachycystole and associated fetal heart rate changes. ACNM and AWAN, or the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses, have really excellent guidelines and protocols for intermittent auscultation for nursing in particular. Um, and so we'll post links to those on the website because they're definitely worthwhile to take a look at. And if you don't have an IA protocol to offer to your patients, is worth looking at to get something started. Faye, I'm going to let you talk about your favorite thing, amniotomy. Yes. Um, so I love amniotomy, but depending on where you are in practice patterns, this might be one of the most controversial things in labor management. So here we're only going to discuss routine amniotomy and spontaneous labor. So we're not going to talk about amniotomy in the induction of labor, which, you know, arguably could have some different outcomes, right? In terms of, you know, routine amniotomy and spontaneous labor, this separates out when amniotomy is indicated, like when it facilitates things like FSC or placement or IUPC placement for slow labor progress in combination with Pitocin. And essentially, we're only looking at the role of it in spontaneous labor. So in spontaneous labor, amniotomy alone does not shorten the duration of labor. It doesn't reduce the incidence of C-section. It doesn't reduce patient satisfaction. It doesn't reduce the rates of five-minute APGAR scores less than seven. That doesn't increase the rates of abnormal fetal heart rate patterns, and it doesn't increase the rate of cord prolapse. So what does it do? <laughs> Basically, it doesn't really seem like there's a reason to do this routinely in a patient who is spontaneously laboring. So you should really only reserve it in spontaneous labor to do things like facilitate monitoring or to perform interventions if it is indicated. So for example, if that labor has stalled out, if you're not able to trace the baby well over the abdomen, things like that. Now let's look at within the context of labor induction, right? Um, which I think is what a lot of people want to know. Um, because, you know, really, if someone is spontaneously laboring well, why are you doing anything to them? Just let them labor. There was a 14-trial meta-analysis that looked at um, amniotomy when used alongside oxytocin, and it did decrease the length of first stage of labor by about 1.1 hours. There was a modest reduction in C-sections, so a relative risk of 0.87 versus expectant management. And another meta-analysis with four trials compared early versus late amniotomy after cervical ripening. So again, when you're inducing someone. Early was defined as before active phase, and late was defined as after active phase or awaiting SHRAM. In these two groups, there were similar rates of C-section. Early amniotomy um, led to a faster interval to delivery, so by five hours, and vaginal delivery rates overall were similar between the groups, though technically reduced in the early group on the basis of a single trial, which was 67.5% versus 69.1%. There was no increased risk of cord prolapse, hemorrhage, abruption, choreo, or any differences in neonatal outcomes. So the takeaway is that an artificial rupture of membrane and amniotomy is reasonable when it's indicated to facilitate monitoring, especially if pitocin is already started, and it may reduce the time to delivery without necessarily increasing other risks. However, there's very little data to guide this overall. So again, another place to do more studies. And Nick, the last question that we sometimes talk about and may even get some pushback about from our nurses um, and other colleagues is this question of immediate versus delayed pushing. So are we okay to wait for a little while for someone, you know, to labor down, so to speak, or should that person just start pushing immediately? Yeah, that's a great question, Faye. And I think that 
you know, a lot of the application of this data in particular can be the cause of like what prompts these arguments back and forth between advocates and opponents of delayed pushing, right? The committee opinion actually lays it out really nicely and specifies specifically nulliparous patients with epidural analgesia being allowed to passively descend or labor down once they're identified to be 10 centimeters, because that is where the data is. The data is not in the unanesthetized nullip or multip or not really in multips at all. It really applies to nulliparous patients with an epidural. Again, the theoretic benefit of passive descent is to allow the fetus to just rotate and descend in the pelvis more and allow mom to conserve energy for pushing after some time. The guidelines that are out there with respect to length of second stage that we've talked about on the podcast before, the ACOG SMFM obstetric care consensus for reducing primary cesarean delivery and talking about the length of time to allow for pushing, do not take into account the duration of passive descent or active pushing. It, it just counts total time in the second stage. That's one important consideration because the data really does not, again, get granular enough to say, oh, you get five hours if you passively descend for an hour or you get four hours total. Um, it's really, again, those guidelines are there saying, again, if we speak about nullips with an epidural, four hours of total time in the second stage before considering cesarean delivery. In the committee opinion, they reviewed some data um, of two meta-analyses of randomized trials that demonstrated delayed pushing for one to two hours, increased the length of the second stage by about an hour, and decreased the length of pushing by about 20 minutes. Um, and there was no difference in vaginal delivery rate. Those two meta-analyses, importantly, didn't include the most recent randomized trial. It was published in 2018 in JAMA that you probably saw and have heard about. It was a randomized trial that delayed pushing for 60 minutes at identification of complete dilation versus immediate pushing, again, specifically in nulliparous patients with an epidural. The trial was actually stopped before its full intended recruitment because of an increased morbidity rate in the delayed group. And there is no difference overall in the patients that were recruited in vaginal delivery rates. But those increased morbidities included lower rates of chorioamnionitis in patients with immediate pushing, lower rates of postpartum hemorrhage with immediate pushing, and lower risks of neonatal acidemia with immediate pushing, all in the range of a 30 to 40% reduction. So pretty significant. Again, I think Looking at the data in total and looking at this really well done randomized trial, delayed pushing in the nullipara with an epidural seems not to confer any benefit and is likely increasing the risk for harm. Um, so again, in that specific population, you really shouldn't be doing passive descent. In other populations, the data is not necessarily there one way or another. But again, I think this is enough to make you at least pause and think about passive descent. All right, Faye, I think that does it for our podcast today and a lot of these techniques for limiting intervention in labor and birth. Why don't we try and summarize? 
So we first talked about coping uh, techniques in labor, and we talked about you know continuous emotional support. Basically, continuous emotional support actually has been shown to lead to better outcomes in studies, um, and that can come in the form of doulas, friends or family, or potentially even technology. Um, especially in this time of COVID, where we are limiting the number of people that can come into the delivery room for safety purposes. There are also multiple methods of non-pharmacologic techniques for coping, um, and again, we're using that word because it's a better way to assess labor pain. And those things include things like water immersion, um, intradermal sterile water injections, acupuncture, TENS units, aromatherapy, audio analgesia with virtual reality, which is pretty cool. And also, um, you know, make sure to check out uh, Dr. Wong's study um, from Cedars-Sinai, as well as um, Rebecca Decker's uh, website, Evidence-Based Birth. We then talked about a number of issues in obstetrical management of labor and delivery. And we started with the question of the patient in latent labor and when to admit them, kind of coming to a conclusion that there's really not good data to guide us one way or another, but that delayed admission may have lower rates of epidural use and labor augmentation, um, better patient satisfaction, and less time spent in L&D without altering significantly any obstetrical outcomes. In terms of whether or not to induce a patient when they come in with a pre-labor rupture of membranes, you know, some things to consider is, you know, do we need to induce them right away? Can they wait? And if they wait, how long can they wait? So it's reasonable, I think we've come to the conclusion, to wait some time for spontaneous labor based on the term prompt data, uh, because about 80% of patients will labor by the 12-hour mark after their pre-labor rupture of membranes. However, there is an increased risk for these patients in terms of things like infection, and especially in patients who have a history of group B strep positivity, they should be getting penicillin immediately, even if we are not inducing them. Oxytocin does seem to be the best agent, though evidence is still somewhat limited overall and would make for a great project. We then talked about intermittent auscultation, noting that continuous fetal monitoring unfortunately hasn't been shown to significantly affect outcomes in low-risk patients. Again, those outcomes being things like perinatal death or cerebral palsy. Intermittent auscultation can be used in the appropriate selected low-risk patient and potentially decrease risk of cesarean, though a Cochrane review of 13 RCTs demonstrated while there was a lower cesarean operative delivery risk for intermittent auscultation, there was an increased risk of early neonatal seizures. Ultimately, long-term outcomes did not differ between the two strategies. We'll post on our website the ACNM and A1 guidelines with respect to intermittent auscultation. When we talked about routine amniotomy, um, in the low-risk patient who is spontaneously laboring, it is not something that we recommend doing routinely, and instead we should reserve it for um, when we need to facilitate monitoring or if there's intervention that is indicated. However, in a patient who you are inducing or augmenting in terms of their labor course, um, AROM is indeed reasonable when indicated to, again, facilitate monitoring, especially if Pitocin has been started. It may reduce the time to delivery without necessarily increasing other risks, but there's very little data to guide this overall. We ended today on the question of immediate versus delayed pushing, um, speaking specifically to naliparous patients with epidural analgesia because that is where the data is. Um, again, we reviewed that there was a recent randomized trial in JAMA that was really well designed that supports, again, no 
delayed pushing because of increased rates of chorioamnionitis, hemorrhage, and neonatal acidemia. Important to remember that the ACOG SMFM obstetric care consensus regarding length of second stage does not take into account duration of passive descent versus active pushing. So those four hours, particularly for nullips with an epidural, um, is your recommended cutoff point to recommend cesarean. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our episode on limiting interventions in labor and birth. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, head on over to our iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsRiverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsRiverCoffee. And if you want to give a support to the show, go ahead and go into our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsRiverCoffee. There's a lot of notes on the website for this episode. If you want to see previous show notes too, head over to our website, CreogsRiverCoffee.com. And if you want to suggest a topic or give us some corrections for this topic or any other topic, go ahead and email us, CreogsRiverCoffee at gmail.com.